Welcome to They Live By Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy and I'm joined as always by my co-hosts Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. How are you doing today guys? Good, how are you? Oh, I'm excellent. I, I'm off the next couple of days, uh, so I'm going to stay up late and watch the football and have a couple of beers and know that I won't have to get up early for work tomorrow. So I'm going to watch I'm going to watch a, a long film tomorrow. So I try and do those on my days off because I don't really have time in the evenings. So I've already, I've already been sort of planning all week what I'm going to watch on my days off. So, yeah, I'm, I'm doing real good. Finally get into that 14 hour movie, right? Christ, no, that's no. I, I was talking more like something that's like three hours long. <laughs> uh, what, uh, what, what do you have in mind or are you saving that? I'll save that for a collection corner. Uh, I'll save yeah. that for a collection corner. But uh, there's well, a couple of things. There's a couple of shorter films I might throw in here and there as well. Um, I kind of made like a bit of a, a mini watch list uh, on my letterbox for stuff that when I'm trying to find something to watch um so I, I might try and watch a couple of those i have like a couple of old hollywood films in there that are all sort of around like 80 minutes or less uh joseph von sternberg that kind of stuff so nice yeah well we i, I think i'm going to be able to stay awake through the episode but we um we had unfortunately uh <laughs> but we were up three or four hours last night with uh with a coughing baby and uh the crazy thing is I don't know if y'all have ever been around if any of your nieces or nephews or anything have been had like a bad cough, but it sounded like demonic at times. Cause it's like, yeah. cause he had, he had like a little bit labored breathing and his voice dropped like three octaves in the cough. So it was like a, it was terrifying. Basically my wife and I were just like, do we take him to the ER? But everything we Googled was like, if they're not, you know, breathing hard, just let him sleep. Um, and so we did. So we'll see what, what happens this morning. We're going to try to take him to the doctor, but uh, it was a really good week. Everything was great. <laughs> I was going to report lots of lots of uh, uh, sunshine here and uh, and good news, but I'm a little bit sleepy this morning. But here we go. I'm ready to talk about these movies. How, how are you, Zach? I'm here. It's still <laughs> early for it's a Sunday early morning for me. So <laughs> we're we're glad to have you with us. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So the, the first film we're going to talk about was the film that, that Chris chose for this week. So if you remember a couple of episodes ago, we highlighted we're just going to do a slightly change the format. And we're still going to talk about the film club films that we do over on Reddit at, at slash or slash uh, Criterion Conversation. Uh, we're still going to talk about one of those uh, rather than two. And then each of us is going to choose a film for the following week. So this was Chris's week. And he dropped one on us um, from Seijin Suzuki, uh, the sort of maverick Japanese uh, director that uh, was like blacklisted for a couple of decades because of making stuff that was too radical. Uh, And we watched a film from him uh, from 1980, which is like his comeback film called Sigourney Weissen, uh, which sort of takes his title from a, a German piece of music that sort of played throughout the film. Uh, just to give you kind of a brief rundown, if you haven't heard of it, uh, I wouldn't be surprised. It's kind of a bit of a, it's a bit of a sort of, um, what's the word? I, I've completely lost a normal word. It's not like a hard word. Obscure. It's a bit of an obscure film. Uh, Arrow did put a release out of it as part of their Taisho trilogy set that came out a little while ago. Uh, but the, the rundown of the film is a surreal period film following a university professor and his eerie nomad friend as they go through loose romantic triangles and face death in peculiar ways. 
Um, I think you can kind of describe this film as nearly anything and it would kind of be right. It's it's very much a, a blank <laughs> canvas. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I was going to That's what I should have asked you to do, Adam. I was like, describe the movie without reading what it's about. Yeah, I would, <laughs> I would, I would struggle. I would struggle. Um, both this film and the film we're going to talk about later. Like, I'm not going to lie. I don't really know what was happening 90% <laughs> of the time. Um, this one's maybe... I'd maybe even going out on a limb here and say maybe this one's a, maybe a bit more straightforward in terms of its plot, but it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting film. As I said, sort of Sajin Suzuki, he was a bit of a radicalist uh, in his early days. He, he made films for um, Nikatsu, wasn't it, Chris? Yeah, Nikatsu? The, yeah, they were sort of known for their kind of film noir films but in japan um and and he made a very radical film which a lot of listeners have probably at least heard of called branded to kill which is kind of like if you took a yakuza film and then subtracted any semblance of plot or um again i've lost my words um you know any sort of background is what what's actually happening it just it's just basically weird action sequences and weird sex scenes and groovy music and that's branded to kill. And after that, he got like blacklisted from the studio. But he finally made his comeback with this film, which is just as sort of bizarre. Uh, but in a, in a different way, I suppose we better just sort of start it off. Um, Chris, this was your week. So did you like this film? Had you seen it before? I don't think you, you said that you'd seen it before. No, I, I, I had the I had the Arrow Academy release of the of the Taisho trilogy. So I wanted I was you know looking for an excuse to watch this. Okay. Um, just just real quick, so uh, they shoot pictures has it at twenty nine thirty eight. I'm surprised yeah. it's on there. I'm not going to be, and I don't mean that in a bitchy way. It's just because it's a little bit obscure. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- this film. So okay, just as a quick uh, like thirty second backdrop of this film. So I had to learn a little bit because I didn't. There was no mention of Taisho anywhere in the movie. So I was like, well, why is this called the Taisho trilogy? So apparently, there's been <laughs> since Japan kind of became. It's its own nation, or I'm not sorry. The the, the history is going to be kind of poor here, but it, there's been five like key emperors in Japan's recent history, and Taisho represented. He was only in power for either 14 or 24 years. It was like a short reign, and so it was like kind of right around the 20s and, and 30s, or maybe teens and 20s. Sorry, I'm not a history teacher, but it was like, <laughs> but like so Taisho was an emperor in Japan, and it was it was a it was a um, period where i guess it's it's people from japan or people that study japanese history would immediately know that they kind of break their history up into emperors and so these three films they're not necessarily linked by plot or narrative uh, and apparently this is the one that is the most structured which is oh, kind of Christ. funny too <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, but so this is, but, but people would recognize that that means, okay, we're going to the twenties, like we're going to this particular period in Japan. So that would mean something just by calling it that, uh, uh, for, for people that know Japanese history. Um, what, yeah, what you do, thing? you do see that a lot in like samurai films and stuff. They'll say it's from like the Udo period or the, yes. the other ones. You'll see it's, that a lot in samurai films. They'll always say it's from a certain period. And that's just kind of the same as the Taisho period. Exactly. Yeah, so that that's kind of there. Um, uh, the other thing that I thought was was kind of funny, but then I'll jump right into what I thought about the movie. But um, the Zagorno Bison is a, a classical piece of music, right? So it's a mm-hmm. it's a relatively famous 
classical piece of music, I guess. I'm not the person to ask about that. Um, but the it's a little bit of a red herring in the story. It's used, but it has no real bearing on much of the much of the story, which I thought was kind of funny. But um, uh, but it means the the ways of the nomad. I think it technically means the ways of the gypsy, but that's not really a um, that's more of a dated term, I guess. But it but it means it, if it translates to English, it means the ways of the nomad. So that's kind of what I was thinking about as I thought about this movie because you know, I don't know if I like this movie or not. <laughs> That's my long-winded way of getting to that point. I think this is kind of everyone that's <laughs> going to be in the same boat then, which is yeah. nice, I suppose, for once. Yeah. Uh, unless Zach comes in and says he just straight up hated it, that might be another. No, I did not. <laughs> I'll get into that, but I didn't straight up hate it. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, like, with these kind of films, I often struggled, like you said, to figure out if I actually like it or not. It was engaging, which for me, you know me, I don't really like once it gets past two hours, I start to I start to dig. Yeah. Um, like it was engaging. Um, it has a, like you said, it does have a structure despite being odd. It does seem to have some kind of structure, not as obvious. Like it doesn't say like five years later or stuff between different periods, but it's sort of inferred. Um I don't know. It's 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 a really odd film, and and therefore kind of makes it hard to say. Yes, I like this movie. Would I rewatch it? Probably not. Would I go off and tell people to actively not watch it? No. You know, if someone said to me, "Oh, I'm thinking of watching Sigrun of Bison," I'd first off be like, "Who are you? <laughs> you must be some weirdo. I don't know anyone who would know that film." And then I would be like, "Yeah, you should watch it. It's weird. It's interesting." Um, so. You know, it's not like a film where I actively would tell people not to watch it, but I would probably never watch it again. Yeah, I want to hear what you have to say, Zach, and then I want to make a case for at least the best I could do in, in reading a little bit about it and trying to come up with some some semblance of sense for it. But before we get into that, Zach, what did you think? Well, um, I'll kind of go through my experience a little bit first, because, you know, as cliche as that is, I think it is more of an experience more than anything else. Um, but this was mine. Um, so I'm watching it. I'm watching this um, crab come out of a woman onto the screen. And I'm like, okay, all right. And my, that, that kind of leaned to my expectations. Like, well, it's on the arrow player. So I was like, yeah, okay, all right. I'm, I'm following, I guess. And then I remember about an hour in, I remember the woman licking the dude's eye. And I just, at that moment, realized I had no idea what was going on. I was engaged <laughs> and by the end of it the only thing i kind of figured out was i don't know maybe it's a ghost story i i was guessing um i was like i guess it is um because there's an actress who plays two completely different characters that has nothing to do with it i had to confirm that because i was like i think that's the same actress and i looked it up I, okay it is the same actress yeah that, that that's something <laughs> i mean it was i was I, I stayed with it all the way through i did i have a chance to like I did kind of what you did, Chris, and I, I started looking a little bit in the history. Um, so that was kind of fun. I, I didn't know a whole lot about that part of Japanese history. Um, like, I, I remember uh, there was a part I looked up about, like, the kids who were singing that song. And I cannot say the part of China they're singing about because that's not going to go well. But essentially what they're singing about is a part where Japan was occupying this area in China and a bunch of atrocities happened. And I'm like, okay. I don't know what that has to do with anything else, but that's a cool factoid. Um, so everything's kind of loose 
about my thoughts. I have no like generalized thoughts. So I'll yeah. love to hear what you have to say, Chris. Much like the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I'm trying to remember the kids song now. I wonder, I can't even necessarily, what, what part Do you of the mean, movie was... Are you talking about the blind, the blind people? That's well, it's, uh, I'm trying to think of exactly where it's at. It's, the, they go to the beach and there's just these kids singing the like singing about this song. It's not a it's not huh. a major part of the film by any means. It just kind of caught my attention because I'm like, what does this have to do with anything else? <laughs> I'd say there's so many little moments that we all sort of took away. The other everyone else has kind of completely forgotten about. Yeah, but it's interesting that you sort of brought up the ghost story because I, I was kind of um, at, no towards the end where um, I can't remember what. She, it was the same actress like you mentioned but I can't remember what name she was going by in, at the end but it's sort of like the nomad character's second wife and she's coming looking for the, the copy of Zigorno Weissen and, yeah uh, and there's even a part where the main character the German professor guy he's um well the guy who teaches German that not he's not he's not German but anyway um when he confuses the two characters who are played by the same person and thinks he sees a ghost so I was like okay I guess that's where this is going because he yeah. seems very confused when he does meet the uh, the woman the other actress plays, and and the way that she's sort of portrayed in that's in those scenes towards the end, you know, it's very sort of it is almost very ghostly. She sort of standing outside a bit far away. It's not like you know she can be gone up and touched or anything like that. Um, it, it, remind, it reminded me kind of like you know uh, like Quaidan, um, or um, uh, not Anibaba. What's the other Kuraneko? Um, that the other Shinoda film. Um, so it kind of reminded me of that. So I do, I do get where you're coming from, uh, from that point of view, uh, now whether or not it's actually a ghost story or who the fuck knows. I mean, I just kind of went, cause the little kid asked for his bones or something towards the end. I'm trying to remember now, but I was like, cause there's a whole thing with bones throughout the story as well. Like, yeah. Yeah. The, the dude, the nomad character who really reminded me of, I don't know if you guys have got this. Um, he really reminded me of Toshiro Mifune. Um, oh, no, totally. Yeah, you got that too. Cool. Um, glad it wasn't just me. Um, very much reminded me of like his character in Seven Samurai, mixed with the look of Yojimbo. Um, but what was I saying? Um, I've completely forgotten. Actually, oh yes, no bones. Yes, he has obsession with bones being being pink or something, and then uh, his bones are not pink. <laughs> I don't know what yeah. that means, but <laughs> that was his obsession with the films. Okay. Um, just real quick on that, uh, I think uh, it actually made me wonder, because I've always thought Mufune was brilliant in the way that he was so kind of uh, right on the edge of insanity with his characters, some of his characters, but he always seemed to have wisdom in, in, in his craziness, right? Like, obviously, Seven Samurai jumps off, but it's not the only time that he's been, he just plays very large and big and crazy, but he does it in a way that it's like he, he's not wrong. So it's an interesting thing. But, you know, I wonder if that's almost more of a part of Japanese uh, uh, theater now, because watching this character, he was so much like Mafune when he was at his craziest. It actually made me wonder if that was more of just like a Japanese theater kind of thing, because I think Suzuki and Kurosawa, they both were really into uh, theater. That's one common thread, uh, thread between them two. Um, but I, okay. So here's what I wanted to kind of chat about, because I think like, I, although I'm sure it's interesting to hear us just call out random scenes <laughs> for 40 minutes and talk about what they were. I, 
I was trying to think about, is there anything that I can do to kind of like tie this narrative together in my head or tie what the meaning of this in my head? And the closest thing I could think about is it felt to me like the whole movie was contrasting somebody who's like rooted, right? And, and um, safe in their choices and somebody who's very tethered to reality, uh, uh, very practical, right? That anything you want to like ascribe to that personality. Like they teach German, which is, you know, one of the most structured languages. They uh, are in a military academy, which is one of the most structured institutions. They're very safe. They don't do anything, uh, you know, really uh, bold or, or, you know, you know where I'm going with this. And that's obviously Aochi, right? Then on the other hand, you have uh, the, the opposite energy. So everything that the other character does, Nagasako, Naka, Nagasago, everything that he does is the opposite of that, right? It's untethered. It's uh, uh, free. It's like um, he was a German teacher, but he left. And now essentially he's just traveling. He's a nomad. Um, and it's, so it's contrasting these two, the, the, the whole movie, but it's not necessarily doing so with judgment on either one. Like I never felt like one was specifically called out as better or worse. And I'm you know, happy if you all disagree. I'm just, just kind of positing this here as like <laughs> trying to do my best to make sense of this. Are um, you, the, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, no continue. Just, I'll let you finish your point. Just the last, just the last part, because it, it's contrasting these two the whole time, but at the same time, they're connected in a lot of ways as well. So they're certainly not separate, um, but they're complete opposite energies. So I just want to leave it. I just want to stop there for a second. Um, Are you basically saying that Nakasoko is Tyler Durden? <laughs> I'm, I'm not even, I'm not even joking. Huh. That's interesting. I'm not. So the whole time, Chuck Palahniuk and then uh, what's the guy Fincher are just ripping off Zigerna Bison. Maybe. Look, I'm only kind of half. I'm only kind of half joking when I say that. You know, it's just when you were describing that, all I can think of was Fight Club. Um, spoilers maybe for Fight Club. Fight, <laughs> spoilers for a 22-year-old movie. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, oh. Thing. I but uh, well, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to say that Nakasogo and Aoichi are the same person or anything like that. But perhaps that duality is is on is on purpose to sort of highlight. You know, you know, this is what you know the the more grounded person this is the positives of being the more grounded person. He has structure in his life, but then on the other side, being less structured, being more like Nakasoko, he maybe enjoys life a bit more and you know Aochi's wife is more attracted to that than he is than she is to Aochi and she has an affair with him and all that kind of stuff so I'm not out here saying that Aochi and Akasoko are the same person I don't mean it more I don't mean it as a literal connection between you know Fight Club and this film but just more so in the sort of generalized idea of having this sort of dualities of persona uh, sort of co coexist and their differences very much highlighted well, that kind of sums up the uh, time period itself, right? Like this is when Japan is becoming much more Western. This is, yeah. and so you have this duality of East versus West. You know, you have one character who's still wearing a more traditional Eastern clothing, and then you have the other who's wearing much more Western. He's 
German professor. Um, so I think there is, you know, something there. That's probably is the point now that y'all mentioned. Fucking that. solved it. Solved it. <laughs> Doesn't make me understand it more, but I, I get go. the point. <laughs> I wonder if I wonder if that's why audiences responded so well to this act. That's brilliant. I wonder because that that tension they, is that was that's a good question. So that was, that, did did audiences like this movie? Oh yeah. So yeah, okay. So this went from literally no studio, uh, sorry, no theater would show it because he was blacklisted, right? So he literally rented a tent and showed it outside of a building. And that was how the film premiered. And it sold out so much that it moved into theaters and then won the Japanese Academy Award for Best Picture. I mean, that's actually pretty cool. Um, That's (laughs) impressive, yeah. I want somebody to do that here. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what the equivalent would that to that would be here. I mean, I guess maybe like if a trauma movie or something all of a sudden was nominated for Best Picture. I mean, maybe I think if Trumbo a... had done that, like when he was blacklisted, you know, for maybe being communist, I mean, that might have been an equivalence. Well, you've actually just brought up a really good point there, Chris, right, with, by comparing it maybe to trauma. So obviously Suzuki was known in the sort of early part of his career as a sort of radical filmmaker showing all this crazy shit and everything like that, you know, being very much essentially taking B movie aesthetics, putting it into a Yakuza setting and removing all exposition. But this movie is much more classical in terms. It's very much almost like a told like a book. Um, You you know, it's trying to think of a kind of way to a movie to compare it to, but like, it's almost sort of like a um, what's those guys Merchant and Ivory. It's kind of like a really weirder yeah. version of a Merchant and yeah. Ivory yeah. film, right? You know, it's it's shot much more like that. It's not a set, it's not radical in terms of how it's filmed per se, just in terms of its narrative structure more so than anything. Um, so <laughs> I don't know if the if the trauma um, comparison works for that, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to highlight that. It's it's a weird film, but it's very well put together in terms of its cinematography and how it's shot. It is put together like a like a very classic film. You know, just real quick on that, somebody we spoke with. I, I, I apologize, I can't remember who right now, but they used the term novelistic to describe a movie, and that, that that's kind a of great way. With... Yeah, novelistic. When I was when I was saying classic, I I much more meant novelistic. That's exactly uh, how this film feels. Huh. Do you remember the, the Corrieta film we saw in the film club, uh, still, uh, still Walking, I think? Yeah, or, I love that movie. I want to walk some more or whatever. <laughs> yeah, still, still Walking, yeah. So. Yeah. Um, I didn't really resonate with that film, and I know I'm going to get a lot of hate for that. I, it just, I, I, I don't know if I really love domestic dramas, like, a ton. Like, I'm okay with some of them, but the, this one, you know, um, I think Bergman would be classified as domestic dramas, right? And I love him. More but, chamber pieces, what he prefers, but uh, oh, okay, okay, that's why I like they're more about the psychological aspect, whereas the more Otsu Koreeda stuff is not really psychological, it's just more about dynamics. Okay, well, thank you for that clarification. That that makes me feel better about saying that I don't know if I resonate with domestic dramas or not. Um, <laughs> but this one was set, certainly set up that way in the beginning, right? Uh, yeah, for the most part. Obviously, there's like a kind of weird enough opening scene, you know, where people are approaching this the nomad character on the beach and stuff. Um, so once it gets going, then yeah, it is kind of set up in that sense. But at the same time, it has it's 
it's traditional in that sense, but it has a lot of Suzuki's kind of weirdness just mixed in to the point where it's definitely not a uh, Ozu film. No, no one would ever mistake it for that. <laughs> no, definitely not. No. Um, the camera actually moves in this movie. <laughs> yeah, is that? Yeah, exactly. Um, I, and I just can't imagine. It's almost like if Takashi Miike made a Ozu film or something. <laughs> it's just got like crazy elements of both. But um, I, I think like, yeah, maybe we've kind of cracked it. I mean, this idea that the East and West is competing for the psyche of, of the audience is super interesting to me, Zach, because are you saying, are we saying that then uh, Naga Sako's character is the traditional um, Japanese character and that Aoichi is the West? Is that what we're saying? Like That's kind of what I was getting at. I mean, that, that's kind of how it looks to me because of how drastically different they dress and act and the time period it took place in. And I wonder as well if Japan's ties to Germany in World War II is important as well because Nakasoko stops being a German professor and goes back to a more traditional way of life. So it's kind of like going back to Japanese roots, whereas Aoshi is still a German professor. So he's obviously, you know, embracing the modern aspects sort of post-World War II. Yeah, I, I think I think that really does, would make a lot of sense because from what, at least in my reading, I'm sure someone could correct me who's a lot more knowledgeable on Japanese history, but this is the period that led into the much, very much more nationalist Japanese culture that would you know, be a big part of them joining the Axis powers and that time period in there. Yeah, this would have been the period where, you know, they would have been sort of refusing to do trade, you know, with the West and stuff like mm -hmm. that. For, if I remember correctly, again, I'm no expert on Japanese history either, but I believe this is much more a case where, yeah, this, this period was where they were wanting to not do trade with the West, but also sort of become more expansionist in their own um, empire and stuff like that. That reminds me of Mishima. So when, when was Mishima set? 1970. Okay. Because that was a big theme in, in Mishima, right? Was the nationalism and how he was kind of like this, this relic of this, this really kind of intense, almost militaristic, like national pride, but nobody was really on board with him, right? Because he was maybe 20 years too late or something. Yeah. Everyone had already sort of moved on on and we're ready to embrace the west at that stage yeah so that was 1970 okay so that means that probably by the so 50 yeah so after world war ii you're saying there was a strong rise in nationalism no 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 well, prior to world war ii and that's what would have that's what it led to their expansionism yeah this uh, this kind of from my understanding of what i read this era where it's what we would kind of equate to I guess in the U.S. is like the flapper girl era, the the twenty, the the jazz twenties. That that's kind of what this era is to them. It's a lot more open to things like that, open to other cultures. And so, I don't know the details, but ultimately this is what leads to a more national uh, nationalist feel for Japan, which of course will lead into World War II and them joining with Italy and Germany. Interesting. It's almost like the pendulum is swinging both ways. Yeah, in a lot of ways, this was, uh, and you mentioned it earlier, Chris, this was such a short time period for them, um, and it had a huge impact, but 
I think that short of time also didn't give it, you know, if I'm going to speculate here, um, may have not given them enough time to adopt something different. And then it kind of swings the other way, as you kind of put it. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, well, I, I don't really know where to go with that um, uh, without embarrassing myself thoroughly uh, <laughs> as it goes to history. Um, but I did want to call out quickly the, the, the tra uh, traveling, I guess, tribe or traveling group of blind um, singers. I thought they were had an interesting use. Did are y'all have y'all seen a lot of the Zatoichi films by chance? I no, actually, that, but I haven't seen it. <laughs> I was actually it's, it's something that I'm gonna get started on pretty soon. I'm gonna watch at least the first one. Um, I was actually researching it last week just to see you know if they were on the channel and stuff, which they are, which is nice. Um, well, so. they're amazing if y'all get a chance to. I haven't seen all twenty seven, but I've seen fifteen or so. I love them thoroughly, but. There's the you know he the the theme in in the Zatoichi movies is if you look like across the films it's this the idea that the blind masseuse it, it can see more than anybody else right because he listens as, as opposed to just like uses his eyes and so he's developed his other senses and he's a better warrior and a better fighter because he's able to use his senses where people rely on their eyes. Um, and, uh, you know, this group was interesting because as they, the moments when they showed up, they were always like, a, almost like a Greek chorus, right? They were, they were explaining what was going on in the movie. When they were with the geisha early on, the first time they met the, the, the geisha who wound up being one of the two women that looks alike, they uh, were, were singing about sex in kind of a funny way that made it like really awkward for the people in the room, <laughs> which I thought was kind of a funny scene. Um, Cause she was like, ah, oh, yeah, I know them. Like they do this all the time. <laughs> they come to, I was just imagining thinking like, you're kind of in the mood for this, like, uh, you know, romantic, like intimate moment. And, and these three people come below with their shamashan little like mandolin looking thing and, and start singing about like sex. It's like the least sexy thing ever. The biggest turn off. Um, but yeah, like they, they keep showing up in these critical moments where the story uh, either needs a little bit of exposition or Suzuki wants to like highlight the emotional impact of kind of what's going on, right? One, one or the other. Uh, and I thought that was an interesting touch. Again, kind of calling back to maybe like a more theatrical type touch where even like Shakespeare would have these people that were sort of like calling out what was happening or explaining what was going on in the scene a little bit, right? Yeah, and, you know, since they're travelers, traveling musicians, if I remember correctly, I, tr I looked it up, and I may be misremembering, but it means something like gypsy music or gypsy atmosphere, uh, something like that, right? Like this whole traveling pe set gypsy of people. Airs. Gypsy airs. Gypsy airs is the name is. of the, is, that's the name of the, well, that's, that's the, the literal translation of Sigourney Weissen. Okay. So it, it, it does link in with the sort of traveling singers because airs will obviously be a, gotcha. a sort of a, a word used a lot for, for a piece of music. Okay. I actually didn't know that. Okay. That makes sense. And just sort of in relation to that, then sort of last thing I, I have to say anyway, um, was just about the sort of nature of the piece of music in the film. So obviously it's, it's used 
in in sort of scenes where the two characters are basically trying to figure out what was being mumbled. So on this particular recording they have of this piece of music, someone sort of mumbles in between a bar of music where there's silence. And they both sort of become obsessed with figuring out what was actually mumbled. But they never, it's obviously never disclosed. I don't know. I, I, I don't I actually didn't read into it too much to know if that's even like an actual real thing um, with this piece of music or not, or whether it was just for the sake of this movie. Um, but I'm always kind of wondering if, if having Suzuki do this is almost kind of like a bit of a prank on the audience. Um, because, you know, he has these two characters so obsessed with trying to figure out this one little mystery. And he himself creates a mystery by them not finding out what, what it says so in a way we're kind of becoming like Aochi and Nakasogo where we're trying to watch and pick up or trying to listen and try and pick up what's happening but it's never revealed and same way that the sort of mumbling on the piece of music is never revealed I, I love that that's kind of I'm so glad you came back around to that I think the whole piece of music is essentially a red herring right they don't it, it doesn't have any significant bearing on, on understanding the plot, right? It, it's something that they love. It's a part of their life. And it even leads to an argument there at the end. But I wouldn't say that understanding that music or uh, knowing what those mumblings are has any bearing on the story at all, right? And that's what I'm trying to say as well, though, because yeah, these characters, they, they're trying to understand what's being said, but it doesn't change the music just like us trying to figure out what the movie means doesn't change the movie. Oh, exactly. Sorry. Then yes, hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's exactly, that's exactly right. I thought that Hitchcock did that, right? Like that was a, that was a comment. I'm not saying Suzuki copied Hitchcock, but he set yeah, up. Yeah. Red, red herrings are used a lot in film noirs, uh, but Hitchcock as well. Like uh, he would use them more as a way of uh, progressing a plot, you know, like the, like the, the the tape canister in North by Northwest, for example, or the money in Psycho. It's a it's an object used to progress the plot, whereas Sigourney Weissen is kind of like an anti-red herring because you think it's going to progress the plot, but it, it in no way has any bearing really on what actually happens. Um, so it's kind of like an it's kind of like an inverted version of that. Well, maybe that's maybe that shows his noir uh, training coming through. Maybe he can't help it. Yeah. Um, I, as I don't know what else there is to say about the movie, honestly. Um, the, it, is it worth talking about the ghost structure of this? Because essentially, the movie dissolves into uh, just like a very, very, very loose connection to reality. Right? I don't know if it's a dream at the end or if it's a, an afterlife that's going on, but it it, it, it descends into like just very loosely being connected even to reality, right? Yeah. Um, what it even means, I suppose, what we're saying before, I'm not even too sure. And I don't know if there's any point in us trying to figure it out. It's as the film goes on, it does for sure become less and less sort of grounded in reality for such a novelist to bring back a phrase we used earlier to bring back such a, bring such a novelistic film into the sort of realm of maybe magical realism. Um, yeah, you know it, it's an interesting turn um and obviously like zach mentioned before you know it does have that ghost story element especially towards the end you know with uh nakasoko's second wife i suppose 
uh, at this stage. Um, she she has a very ethereal presence. Uh, what it all means, though, I, I don't have a fucking clue. I think Adam said it best. That's that's about where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a perfect spot to end it. <laughs> uh. Okay, and after that uh, confusing and, and kind of uh, roundabout discussion of a very straightforward film, Zagrena Bison, uh, <laughs> it's time to uh, jump into my favorite part of the show, Collection Corner. Um, how, how are y'all's collections this week? Everything good and dusted and, and clean and nicely ordered? Recently alphabeticalized by, yeah, so I'm all good. Do you do straight alpha or do you go by label and then, and then. Alpha? So yeah, label then alpha. So I've all my criterions and alpha and then all my arrows and alpha, all my eurekas and alpha. We never talked about this. You don't do criterion by spine. No, no, that, he's not a heathen. Wait, Zach. Are you I, alpha I, Sorry. What Adam? I, I have two very good reasons why I don't do criterion by spine. Well, there are okay. two re- good reasons in my head. The first is that when I first started collecting cre- uh, Criterions, I was just region B, so I could never be spine complete. So I thought, what's the point in going by spine? Because I'll never be complete yeah. anyway. Okay. And then when I started going region free and I was getting more Criterions and I was putting them on my shelf and I was thinking to myself, if I want to go watch, I don't know, a racer head, why do I have to know the fucking spine number of a racer head? to go watch it when I know what it begins with the letter E. So like, it's all well and good when you have like 10 or 20 criterions. It's only going to take you 30 seconds to look at it. When your collection starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger, I'm not going to memorize every spine number. I'm just going to go by alpha because I know where the letter E is in the alphabet. So that's why I don't go criterion by spine. Zach, what are your bad reasons for not doing uh, spine? Okay, so for me, um, <laughs> it's similar to Adam where... You know, I don't know. Like, I know what number 1,000 is. I know what number one is. And I know what number two is. If I were to name something on that shelf, I couldn't tell you what it was. I, I, I have no idea. Um, it's that. And the other reason is, I think it's a manipulative factor by criterion. Because, you know, like, like if you're somebody, like we have somebody on Discord who, you know, collects all of them. And that's awesome. I could kind of see the appeal with going from number one to number, what are they at? Like 1,300 now? Like, that's, that's pretty that, cool. Yeah. I kind I get that. But for me, it's like, oh, well, if I start doing that, I'm like, well, you know, I, don't, I got number 654 and I got number 657. If I get these two the movies I don't care about, at least they'll be in a row. So it feels a little manipulative. So I don't do it. I, 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 I just like to know where my stuff is. <laughs> like, I don't want to look for it. It's 100% manipulative. That's the brilliance of it. <laughs> people like me to be committed to a cause that I actually wouldn't care about otherwise. Um, uh, I okay. So those are very interesting arguments. Um, certainly, certainly, I understand them. Um, how many times do you go back to the Criterion shelves for movies over the course of a three-year period? Like, like the same movie. Like, how many times are you watching that same movie? over a three depends to five year movie period. depends on the movie if it's if i like it then maybe twice over well two three year period if i really like it then probably twice or three times if i didn't care that much for it probably never again 
Yeah, yeah look I'm at mine. Looking. Like Pan's Labyrinth, I watch every year. So that one gets used pretty good. Uh, Night of the Living Dead, I watch every year. But I'm not now in a rush to watch, rewatch War and Peace. I, I know where Chris is going to go with this. He's mm-hmm. going, well, if you're not going to watch it regularly, then you don't need to know where it is. <laughs> and I get that. But sometimes I also just like to look at my Criterion covers and look at the extras and stuff. So and by extras, I literally mean like the packaging or the poster or the booklet. Even if I'm not going to watch the film, I do very often go when I'm bored and open stuff up and have a look at it. So your your point that you are going to make is is void. Oh, that, I'm so happy to hear you say that, even though you're wrong in the in the conclusion. But um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, uh, that's when I was talking to um, uh, disconnected. I, I felt so vindicated. And now that you say that, Adam, I feel even more vindicated because sometimes I'll just walk over and kind of like, like trace the spines of the, of the movies with my fingers and like pick one out and look at it and kind of flip through it. And my wife thinks I'm insane. She's like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's like so soothing to just see the collection and like have the collection. I love it. Um, not specifically Criterion, but for like all my movies, I'll just kind of like maybe reorder it or just kind of look at it a little bit or uh, I love, I love doing that. So I'm happy to hear I'm not the only one. <laughs> I suppose before we go into actual collection corner, then do you want to talk a little bit about the video you did with disconnected just to give them a shout out? Uh, anybody listening, go watch uh, the YouTube series disc hyphen connected. Uh, uh, Ryan's a, uh, very like-minded individual, I think, to what we're trying to do with these interviews, but he goes slightly different direction. I think he does have some interviews, um, but what he does is he'll go really deep in research and he has like a, a starter's guide for a lot of the boutique labels and he goes really deep into their history and he goes really deep into like what they're, uh, what they're trying to do and, and sort of the, the, the quality of their releases. And he's really active on uh, discussion boards. So Zach, he reminds me almost like you a little bit where he'll actually know like the drama around the color transfers or the drama around like the, uh, you know, this replacement disc coming through or something like that. Like he's, he's very um, connected to all those kind of the gossip in the industry, so to speak. Um, but um, super sharp guy, super nice, very, very like-minded individual. And I don't really watch, there's no YouTube series that I follow. I'm not really like, I, I don't just, that's not something that's part of my kind of entertainment routine, but I've subscribed to him um, and uh, and then Dice Scare, the two that I follow. So kind of movie related, but uh, yeah, I think he's a really, really uh, sharp guy, really nice guy and uh, is help promoting boutiques. So, so go listen to him. And it was a fun episode but, to do. Yeah. I'll put the, the link uh, to the episode in the, in the description. If you are curious to, to see Chris's face, uh, if you, yeah, if you he doesn't even let it. us say it. He's blocked out right now. Yeah. So yeah, if you, if you wanna if you wanna give that a watch, um, I'll put the link in the description. Uh, who want, who wants to jump in with collection corner first? Then anyone? Jump. I'm not short. I can jump in real quick. Um, yeah. big thing for me. Uh, I didn't get. I haven't really gotten much boutique label stuff right now. I got my um blue underground stuff. Um, so I'm complete on that. That that's great. It's a, it's a huge money hole. Um, so that, that was fun. Uh, the big thing I got this week is something that's not boutique, but I got Halloween Kills on Steelbook. I'm super nice. excited. Finally, have, I'm back complete on that as well. And that was one that was aggravating because it was sold out the moment Best Buy put it up for, you know, to buy. 
So it was out of stock. And then they had like a two hour restock that I was able to jump in and pay way too much money for, but at least better than eBay prices. And so there it is. That's, that's kind of been mine. I don't have a whole lot going on right now. That's nice. That's, uh, what about you, Adam? So I, I spoke a couple of weeks ago that I was waiting for a Eureka order uh, to come in uh, for some stuff, uh, Chinese films especially, because I was trying to get into that kind of stuff. So finally came in anyway, uh, a little over a week ago. Haven't touched any of the films yet, but I will be watching one of them tomorrow, which I'll talk about in a sec. So let's go through what I got. So I got their release of Jackie Chan, Police Story 1 and Police Story 2. Obviously, I've seen Police Story 1. Uh, we watched it. Well, I had watched it myself, and then it was picked as a film club film. This is not a, an actual Masters of Cinema release. This is just part of their Eureka Classics line. So it doesn't have a spine number or anything like that for the for the completionists out there. Um, the rest of them are, I believe, well, two of them definitely are the next two, uh, which are both by a guy called King Who. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with King Who, but yeah, he yes. essentially is like the granddaddy of the wuxia genre, apparently, from what I've been reading. Um, so I got two films from him. First one is Raining in the Mountain, which is on the Criterion channel. Um, really lovely artwork on it. Uh, I was more so enticed by the artwork than the film's plot. I'll be honest, I don't even remember what it's about. <laughs> but that is on the Criterion channel at the moment. It actually was part of one of our polls. Um, and I can't remember what film won. I think it was the one that went to a tiebreaker um, recently enough in the last few weeks. Um, but it, yeah, it's on the Criterion channel if you're interested. The one film from him I am going to watch tomorrow which apparently is like the granddaddy wuxia film. It like was a huge influence on Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And that is A Touch of Zen. Um, so it's three hours long. I heard it's meant to be fucking awesome. Um, I don't know. Have you guys seen A Touch of Zen? Chris, I heard you go oof. I love that. Yeah, no, that movie is amazing. I, do you, have you That's seen good. a lot of... Whoa, what happened? <laughs> what? Sorry, you Sorry, talked at the same time, time and it kind of... Yeah. Um, Sorry, what were you what were you saying, Zach? I said it was a good oof, apparently. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and Chris, what were you gonna say? It was a good oof. Uh, have you seen a lot of Wisha films before? No. I've seen I saw Crouch and Tiger Hidden Dragon many moons ago before I even got into film, and I thought it looked awesome. Um, but I didn't really wasn't really following the plot too heavily. Um, but yeah, no, yeah. I don't think of I don't think other than Shang-Chi, which I don't think we're, we're gonna count, then the answer is pretty much no on Wuxia films. Uh, it's just it's just beautiful filmmaking it's just very theatrical like i love it it's yeah uh, it's i've heard amazing things about it i read actually i've been i completed reading um mark cousins the story of film i finished that last week and i remember when i got to the section of like 70s films and in, in asia he talked heavily of this film in specific so um yeah i'm looking forward to watching that one tomorrow and uh, the last one then that i got uh, which obviously has a criterion release um which has more films than this is the, the once upon a time in china trilogy this is like this is actually it's called the once upon a time in china trilogy but this set actually includes four films um it has the original trilogy and then it has one which is called once upon a time in china and america now i know chris you have the criterion release which i believe contains five films six yeah right? 
six. Okay. I assume one of those is this elusive fourth film that I mentioned once upon yeah. a time in China and America. Yes, it is. Um, I'm trying to remember if that's for the fourth one or if that's the one where if that's the sixth one, because um, once upon a time in China, let's see. Um, well, anyways, I, I think it's possible that that's, there's a jump in there because there's a different actor that comes in for number four. Yes. Um, so this may, this, this does make sense then because it, it does say in the description, um, prepared to present the original trilogy as well as Once Upon a Time in China and America, which saw Jet Li return to the role after a four-year gap. Yeah, that's what it is. So it's the sixth one. Okay. I assume um, I don't need to know what happened in four and five to follow the sixth one, hopefully. But uh, No, these films in general, I, I mean, well, they do kind of follow each other, but they're not like, it's not like it, you know, they're, this is not Sigourney Bison, right? This is I, this is like popcorn movies, right? These are cool. these are fun, silly uh, epics. I, I don't know how else to describe it. Like they are epic. The martial arts is beautiful. Uh, Jet Li is amazing with his like physicality. He's just unbelievable. And the choreography is like a cross between Wuxia and Jackie Chan. Like it's not, it doesn't go as far as Wuxia uh, in terms of like the flying and the, you know, like, yeah. uh, like, uh, like lighter than air almost. But there's a lot of stuff like there's a lot of business with 30 foot tall ladders where they're like jumping between the ladders as they're falling in this one room that for some reason has 100 ladders. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's just a lot of that crazy choreography and it. it's really beautiful to watch. But the characters themselves are very silly and like meant to be uh, uh, simple to understand, simple to follow. So there, there's no uh, it's not a heavy watch at all. Um, cool. Yeah, I look forward to getting into those as well. I need to get more into Eureka because I keep looking at yours, Adam, and I like I have two from. Oh, they're Eureka. so nice! Like the only thing, like the only reason I'd say not to bother with a with a Eureka is if you know there's already a criteria. Right. But I have but the like man if, who laughs. I love that edition. It's great. Ah, oh, it's a great one. Yeah, do you have the one with the slipcover? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. same. It's awesome. It's, it's yeah. I they're they're especially good at silent, which I think Criterion does neglect a bit. Um, so obviously because you have Kino and stuff and Flickr Rally, Rally and yeah, well, specializing that. There's more competition for for those kind of rights in Region A than there would be in Region B. Um, but like I've often said it to people, you know. I've seen a comment a billion times on the Criterion sub, which is why I don't go on there anymore, where it's like, oh, why can't Criterion release all their films in all the regions, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, just go to Eureka. They are just as good, in my opinion, in terms of quality, in terms of special features, in terms of like the kind of films they put out as Criterion are. Yeah. And they're I, cheaper. I thought, yeah, it is cheaper, because I got um, The White Reindeer after you recommended it, which was... You know, for a movie, it, it's kind of like, uh, I, I don't know, it's probably more like known in that part of the world. But, you know, it's something I've never heard of, something that seems really obscure. But, you know, it has a great transfer. It looks good. It's well done. Um, I had no yeah, problem. Yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah, it's a good movie. It's, it's okay. If David, if David Eggers has never seen it, I'm very surprised. Or Robert Eggers. What's his name again? David Eggers? Robert Eggers. Robert Eggers, yeah. If he's never seen it, I'll be surprised. Or yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who the fuck is David Eggers? I think you're thinking of because um, they came out around the same time. The guy who did um, 
don't breathe uh, don't breathe Jesus it follows is David, David oh yes 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 David um David Mitchell David or, Robert uh, Mitchell yep David Robert Mitchell Robert uh, yeah yeah I'm I think because they came I'm out they had movies the same year yeah I'm definitely uh now Dave Eggers is also a person uh, apparently he is <laughs> he is he wrote the best-selling memoir a heartbreaking work of staggering genius there you go. Shout, sounds, shout, uh, shout out to David Eggers. <laughs> yeah, friend of the friend podcast. Of, friend Eggers. of the podcast, Dave Eggers. Yeah. <laughs> See, um, when I first well, saw that title, I thought, oh shit, is he writing the screenplay for that Nicolas Cage movie that's coming out? <laughs> Was that the that Unbearable awesome. Weight of Staggering Genius, something similarly titled? Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to go so off track there. Chris, what, what, what have you got for us? I'll be quick. I just want to give a, a quick shout out and it's also kind of a, um, a preview. So I've recently discovered this label from the UK, uh, technically from Wales, shout out to Wales, um, called Fractured Visions. And uh, this guy who runs it, Philip Escott, is a, like, he is in it for all the right reasons. Like, I, I can't, I, I was so impressed in the interview with him just how dedicated he is to putting out films that he loves. And like, it's to the point where he's so busy with his day job um, that, you know, he doesn't get a chance to put out as many movies as he wants to, but the ones that he does put out, it's a good price point, fully stacked with special features. And he tries to get to like three or four a year and he's heavily into genre cinema. So two of the first three films he put out were Sergio Martino and Umberto Lenzi. Uh, and, and he's just, uh, you know, hardcore into like, yeah, more genre films. Uh, uh, and he actually runs a genre film festival in Cardiff every year. So anyways, super interesting guy, very well connected into the boutique kind of publishing world. Uh, and Fractured Visions has two releases. I've got or the three releases now. Uh, Luz, The Faces of Evil or, or the something of evil. The Flower is, of Evil. I'm on their site right now. Thank you. Flower of Evil. Is that a print? at least the slip cover is, um, but silent action and, um, uh, hard, oh shoot. What is it? Hard free hand for the, t- for a tough cop. Thank you. Free hand mm-hmm. for a tough cop are both available. Um, I just picked up silent action, which is why I can't think of the name of the other one, but, um, beautiful, nice, thick heart, like cardboard packaging, uh, really good special features. And, uh, a ton of interviews. So the one, the silent action uh, disc has this like retrospective on Sergio Martino, which is cool. Uh, people just kind of like Italian filmmakers today geeking out about what Martino meant for them, as well as the actor Thomas Milian, who is so influential in so many Italian movies. So um, yeah, great, great guy, uh, great, great label, and uh, a good one to support. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I'm looking at his stuff. It's pretty cool. Um... This, you're right it is a good price because like that uh limited edition for luz was like 19 euro i mean yeah it's about as fair as you can get on something that's pretty nice um i did notice it seems like he must have noticed how sold out the first one was because it looks like he's upped his count numbers on the last good. two because i think the first one was a thousand and then i think it said freehand for tough cop was that six thousand and then silent action was three thousand and, and he teased on there, um, so I'll do a double tease. He teased on there that the next release is going to be 29 Palms coming out. Have you all, do you all remember that movie from the early aughts? Mm-mm. 
it's a wild one. So anyways, that's going to be a fun, that's going to be a fun release. People are definitely going to be talking about that movie. Um, if, if they haven't seen it, it was a, it was limited kind of release when it came out. I think it only played in theatrically in like a lot of, you know, art houses. Um, but it's, it's got a really intense last 10 minutes. Um, it was very controversial when it came out. So it's, it's fun that that's getting a, a nice release. Um, but anyways, yeah. Fractured visions. So shit, I do know this movie, 29 Palms. It was on, it was on movie many moons ago. And I was like, oh, this seems interesting. And I sort of started reading about it. And I'm like, Jesus, I'm not watching this film. Uh, I know exactly the film you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. I, I won't be watching it personally based on knowing what happens in parts of the film. But Yeah. Uh, no, it's pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think you probably would like it. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, so yeah. Anyways, uh, support fractured visions. Good, good, good people. Cool. I could use another label to throw on my shelf. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Welcome back to from Collection Corner. Now we're going to move on to our Criterion voted movie. It was actually my week. Um, I don't quite remember what my theme was. Now that I think about it, I'm, I probably didn't have one knowing me. Um, but this one is called Long Day's Journey into Night. It's by Bygone. Or as it apparently is, is gone by is how he was credited in this one. Um, the movie is supposedly a film noir. I'm going to get Adam's expertise on that soon. But it's about um, this man who returns to his hometown from which he fled 12 years earlier as memories of an enigmatic and beautiful woman resurface. A woman he loved and who he never was able to forget begins to search for her. Past and present reality and dream interweave in bygone stunningly beautiful and highly innovative film noir. So we'll get started. Uh, Adam, is this a film noir? It's a film noir in the same way that Mulholland Drive could be classed as a film noir. Like, I get it, but I get, well, neo-noir would probably be the better term to give it. Um, and it certainly has noirish elements, um, but I wouldn't be calling it a straight film noir. I'm, a, I'm actually glad you it. said Mulholland Drive because that's kind of what I kept comparing it to as I watched it. Yeah, it, it definitely Mulholland has Drive. that. Yeah, it definitely has that in terms of its structure. I like Mulholland Drive way more. <laughs> we'll get into I, that. I, I think, it, I, you know, I don't want to get too far off before we start talking. But I think the difference for me that I could kind of come up with was like with Mulholland Drive, even though I didn't know what was going on, I felt like I cared to figure it out. Like, it's like, I want to know. I like, I, I, I want to get it. Mm. This one, I was like, I'm okay if I don't ever know. <laughs> <laughs> We might, so, uh, be, uh, might be having a bit of a repetitive conversation with this film than we just had with uh, Zigor and Weissen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what, what did you think of it, Chris? Did you like Long Day's Journey into Night? So according to the world, it's 6120. Um, yeah, we'll let, it, we'll, let it, we'll let it be. We'll let it have it. Yeah, and I think part of that is because it's, it came out in 2018, right? So Yeah, it's only a pretty new film. Yeah, I think it's going to raise up uh, it over time uh, for the for the folks that like this type of film. I think it's uh, a good example of it. Um, the other one was like twenty nine hundred, I think. So I, I I like this movie more. My my initial reaction was I like this movie more than Sigourney Um uh, I thought about this movie a lot actually after seeing it. Um, I I didn't know this about myself until I watched the all the, did the Fellini run last year. 
but I really like surrealism, I think, in movies. I, I, didn't, I didn't know that uh, to, to the extent that I really like it. And, and these kind of movies really resonate with me, like sit with me for a while. Um, I, so the, the, the crazier Fellini got, the more I liked him. And when I did the Yodorovsky run, by the time I understood kind of who he was and what he was trying to do, I wound up loving his stuff. And so I think I, 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 think I love surrealism. <laughs> I've learned about myself this year. Uh, and there's elements of surrealism in this. I don't think it's all that, but there, there's enough uh, non sequiturs and, and, and kind of, you know, the surrealist type of imagery and stuff that the film really resonated with me on a kind of an emotional level. I really liked watching it. Um, I had to restart it three times uh, because I got about an hour into the movie and I thought I missed something. <laughs> and so the second time through, I, I stopped it and I like researched real quick just, and I was like, Oh, you're not supposed to get everything. Okay. So then I kind of like the third time through, I kind of sank into it. And so I've seen the first half three times. Yeah. I feel like you're cheating that you've seen it this, this, this many times compared to me and Zach. And I'm like, Dad, you're going to notice way more about this film than we are. <laughs> um, I don't recommend that from a uh, sanity standpoint, though. I was so frustrated. Um, but I, the, the biggest thing that tripped me up is how the second half started, where he was just pushing that cart into the mine, you know? I was like, what is yeah. going on? Um, but anyways, as I sank into it and just let the movie kind of happen, as, as opposed to trying to understand it, um, I enjoyed it more. Uh, I'm sure we're going to talk about it, but the fact that he choreographed and planned and executed a one take that's essentially the second half of the movie, was it 50 minutes or something? Is 59 amazing. minutes. 59 minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, what, a, what a marvel. Uh, uh, to just just the the part of me that would ever think about being a filmmaker is so overwhelmed by something like that size to have it all go perfectly. So I'm impressed with that. Um, yeah, I, I uh, you know there's more to dive into here, but my first reaction was I think this is a movie that's meant to more kind of hit you at a emotional level uh, rather than have a super long discussion about it, and it. And it worked for me. I, I, I really enjoyed this one. Can I give my hot take on the whole one take whole th with this one? Oh, yeah. Go Which ahead. at least I assume it might be a hot take. Maybe, maybe yeah, I don't agree with me, but I don't know. It really bothered me that it was in the movie because I don't really get why. Like, it, it's technically a, a, a technical achievement. It's incredibly difficult to even do that, even in a digital age. It's incredibly hard. Kudos. But I felt like at least like 20% of it was just us walking behind the character or watching their feet. And I'm like, but why? Like, it doesn't feel like less of a journey if you just cut. <laughs> like, I don't know. It just didn't, like, I'm just, I just kind of sat there. And I was like, I kind of get it. It's a dream aesthetic sort of thing. But yeah, I don't feel like it added anything of value. I, I, I get where you're coming from. Uh, I think there's a few different ways you can look at it. Like, I don't really care too much about this movie. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sit here and say I loved it or anything like that. You know, I didn't really care too much about it. There's a lot of things I liked, but there was a whole lot more I didn't. Um, but one thing I will say, that last hour is one of the great technical achievements in cinema history. 
just in terms of how it was put together, choreographed. This is not a simple case. Like I know you're saying it, you know, camera following the guy around, but obviously there's a hell of a lot more to it than that. There's yeah, crane yeah. shots, floats and in t- over an entire village and manages to keep it all. Technical Marvel, one of the greatest things ever sort of done in film from a technical standpoint. Now, on the other side of things, did it need to be done? No. It didn't need to be done. It held no real value to the narrative in terms of like, like we didn't need to, like you said, we didn't need to follow him, you know, doing various things. It, it doesn't actually add anything to the plot. Um, so it's unnecessary, but at the same time, I'm kind of glad it happened because it's it's really fucking cool. It's pretty much the only part of the film that I that I say that I will say that I enjoyed wholly. Like the first half of the film, there was more so bits and pieces I liked. Like I liked the aesthetic. It looked kind of like a one car Y film with the reds and the greens kind of reminded me a bit of in the mood for love in that respect. So there was bits and pieces I could take from the first half of the film that I can say I liked, but I pretty much liked all the second half. And a lot of that came down to, you know, just how engrossing the one shot idea is. Is it a bit of a gimmick? Yeah, sure. But it's still engrossing. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to downplay that it wasn't difficult. It absolutely is difficult. It took a lot of work. I just, I guess I struggle to, I guess, find the reason for it. Like, you know, I just use an example that's famous for one shot. We'll we'll take Birdman. We'll take um, however you say his name's film. That made sense. You know, like I can connect why it's there. I can sit there and connect to, okay, it's the whole thing's a play within a movie. It's about a filmmaker making a play. So the one shot, okay, that's how that's how plays are, you know, there isn't cuts, there isn't anything to take advantage of. I get that. I can connect with that. This one, I was like, it's a dreamlike. So I I get that to an extent, but it's just like, I would have cut there. Like, and I was like, I get it. It's, it's a great achievement. I don't want to downplay that, but I just, I guess that's why I had a hard time like connecting to that one shot. Like I was like, cool that it's done. Like that's, that's really neat. They did it because they could matched for me. Yeah, like they did. It's a case that they did it because they could, and it, rather than to benefit the, the the actual narrative of that section. I mean, you could say that for a lot of the one take movies, I guess, if you really want to be like down on them, right? Like, does is rope? Yeah, rope. I was literally thinking the same thing. Rope doesn't need to be one shot, and it's not. Yeah, and I think Hitchcock agrees with that too, right? Like, didn't he later come out and say, "Yeah, one shot gimmick. doesn't make sense." <laughs> yeah, and it, it is technically it isn't even one shot. I think it's like three or four spliced together yeah yeah um but it doesn't need to be obviously (laughs) there's a bruce campbell movie called running time i think that's one shot i mean there's there's a few examples like i can't think of a lot of them but um so uh, i don't know if this is going to be cheesy or not i'm going to try this and i just want to kind of set the mood because i feel like the poem in the beginning of the movie um sets the mood for the film so are you all okay if I just quickly read it? It's not long. I just, yeah. just to get people into the mindset of what I think really captures like the spirit of this movie and like the tone of it. So he says, whenever I saw her, I knew. Oh, and by the way, if I pause, it's because there's those like ellipses after the word. So it's like, that's where he's pausing, I guess. I'm not like searching for the words. <laughs> okay. Um, whenever I saw her, I knew I was dreaming again. And once you know you're dreaming, It's an out-of-body experience. Sometimes you float upwards. In my dreams, I would always wonder if my body were made of hydrogen. If so, then my memories must be made of stone. 
So I think as I, 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 I don't know, uh, probably because I watched it three times initially, but I wrote that poem down the third time uh, because I was curious why he chose to open the movie that way. And I really like this idea that the last, the way he ended that poem, if the body's made of hydrogen and, 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 he, and dreams help him float, then memories are made of stone and, and keep him uh, grounded or, or, or it's the opposite of love, I guess, in a way, right? So I think he's kind of trying to say that the memories are painful, but the, this new feeling of love like lifts you up, right? In, in a way. Oh, I would read that as more so the memories are weighing him down. He's sort of obsessed. So, you know, obviously the first half of the film, he's constantly sort of brought back to uh, his friend who died. He's obviously looking for this mystery woman that he remembers from when he was sort of last in the town. So uh, I, I, I would be more subscribed to the idea of his, his memories sort of weigh him down that he sort of becomes obsessed with, you know, people that he remembers that much better let's go with that i that makes way more sense um and that then explains in my head it connects with me as to what he was trying to do with the second half of the movie not you know a conversation about whether or not it needs to be one take notwithstanding i see what he was trying to do because there was a lot of connection to uh romance and love in the second half but it was you know, and, and there was, he, he literally lifted off the ground at times. And I was curious how he was flying, but I think it's because it was all a dream. Like, right. Like I think that whole second half of the movie was, was a dream. Right. Yeah. I think that's a pretty, I think we can all agree is probably the most likely explanation is that it was a, the second half's a dream. Kind of like the reverse Mulholland drive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sure that Lynch influenced this guy, right? By a gun. Yeah, it's for impossible. sure. Yeah. For, for sure. Like there's visual motifs, you know, the the sort of same woman showing up in different roles and stuff. I think like Mulholland, like we mentioned Mulholland Drive a couple of times now, I think this is definitely very sort of similar in terms of its, you know, how it goes about, per, you know, not, not the plot itself, of course, uh, or the setting, obviously, but just in terms of the ideas of using visual motifs and recurring themes and, you know, actors playing similar characters, both in reality versus in a dream and how their roles sort of differ, you know, between reality and the dream. Um, yeah, definitely uh, the very least a Mulholland drive influence, if not an entire Lynch influence. Yeah. I, I, I think like, I think this is kind of, what it is like I, I i think this is a film that's meant to be or at least for me this is a film that's meant to be experienced i think it's meant to kind of connect you into a dream like um uh pacing that that's at least what the one take did for me was i i don't dream a lot uh to be honest i don't have a lot of memories like with dreaming but the dreams that i do remember or you know the one like i used to have when i was a kid for years i had this recurring dream that there was like a wave of water, but I wasn't, it wasn't coming down on me. I was like standing on a giant square and just watching this wave of water, but it was still scary. And like, it does, you know, these, these kind of visual images don't make any sense, right? But in the moment you like feel them. Like I remember feel that, that dream used to always wake me up. It didn't make, it made no sense, 
but I was scared of giant squares for a lot of my childhood because of the dream. <laughs> like, not like squares, but like 40 foot squares that I would potentially have to stand on. <laughs> um, and like, uh, maybe I was just bad at math. I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't meant to be a geometry, geometry major. But yeah, like, I think that that's what, that's what this film did for me was it kind of put me in the, in this mindset of sitting and like watching a, a dream and this like journey through a dream. One, uh, suppose, if one oh, sorry. Sorry. No, you go ahead. Zach. My, no, my I was going to say, we, we, we talked a little bit about the um, different influences. The dream one is a big one. You know, how, how we kind of experience dreams. There's the Lynch part with Mulholland drive one. And I'm not going to take credit for this. I wish I could see, cause I was trying to, kind of understand this film a little bit better so one that was brought up and i just kind of wanted to get you know you, you guys perspective on it is uh there's a story that's called the lady and the tiger i don't know if you guys are familiar with it or not mm -hmm. uh, essentially essentially I, I i read it in high school because we had to do like asian um literature we did one called patriotism i gotta get into all that but essentially the story is, it's like from the i want to say the 1800s and it, the whole point of the story is you don't know the choice at the end essentially there is basically is the person going to choose the lady or the tiger that sort of idea and it doesn't tell you that answer and there's actually a part in the film which i didn't notice i'll be honest i didn't notice it but apparently there's a truck that's got like this painting throughout the whole thing and it depicts a lady and a tiger so the idea apparently is that that is also kind of what this film is supposed to kind of be the equivalent to that in a much longer view of it but um, I didn't know if if you guys would just see that as a stretch, but I thought it was interesting when I read it at least. No, like if it's a, if it's a sort of popular Asian book, I can't see why a connection couldn't be made there. You know, especially with the, you know, with um, how elusive this film narrative is in terms of not wanting to give you answers. If if there is a book that has you know a lady and a tiger, uh, and there's also a reference to that in here in a film that doesn't give you answers then this i don't think it's a stretch at all again i'm not familiar with the book so i'd have to maybe do some research on it but from what you're describing it doesn't seem like a stretch yeah yeah i'm in the same boat it'd be interesting to read that story and see if that helps explain elements of the film better we don't yeah, watch uh, just uh the thing that was described i just looked it up just out of curiosity because it's been a while but basically, in the English language, it's an allegorical expression, a shorthand indication or signifier for a problem that is unsolvable. Okay. And perhaps that's referring to the disappearance of, of this character that that the, the main character has been sort of searching for this mysterious woman from, from his past. Um, maybe, maybe he's never meant to find her. Um, you know, that... And then obviously in the, he does in the dream, of course, but obviously that's, like we said, it's just a dream. Um, and uh, this just sort of brings into one part that is very strange for any sort of narrative film, is that the film's title is only revealed just as the dream sequence starts. Yeah. So you guys, when, like at the start, it does sort of, intersperse its sort of titles kind of there's like a there's a there's a good 10-15 minute gap between you know one title card and another title card and we don't see any more and then as he sort of goes into the theater and puts on these like 3d glasses i suppose they're supposed to be um and sort of begins to nod off that's when the title of the film comes up which is very strange 
I thought, shit, is the film over? <laughs> this doesn't feel like two hours. Um, and then obviously the next the next part kicked in after that. Um, and I'm just kind of wondering if we're maybe supposed to see the film as a film of two halves specifically. And that's the reason why he put this title in. You know, with Mulholland Drive, it's a bit more loose in terms of when the two, when the dream and when the reality have actually taken place and where, where the overlap is. You know, some people would say it's during the Silencio scene. Others would say it's when the blue box is opened. I don't know if you guys have seen Mulholland Drive as many times as I have, but <laughs> if that's making sense at all. Um, but with this one, I think it's make, it's it's a much more defined line by having the title in there uh, to say that what you're going to see is essentially another presentation of the same narrative, but just in an entirely different form, if that makes sense. Yeah, because I, I, and I, I think that it could have like kind of two different things. I think there's a utility there too, because from my understanding, this film was 3D, or at least I'm guessing that sequence. That part, where, yeah. Apparently, that part is 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 3D. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it kind of reminded me. And this is gonna. This is so completely different in terms of what the movie is. But there is when <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street Part Six came out. That was in 3D. There's a part in the film you're instructed to when the characters put on the 3D glasses or the glasses or whatever. That's when the audience is supposed. Yeah, to. yeah, 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 yeah. So it's almost like when he puts on the 3D glasses, it's almost like this signifier to the audience, like, hey, this is time. This is, this is the 3D element coming up. So it's, I, think, uh, I think it's almost like, it probably does have like that sort of meaning. I almost wonder if it's just a utility thing as well. Like when you see the title card, please put your glasses on. It reminds me oh. of um, 13 Ghosts with the glasses yeah. as well. The, <laughs> what do they call it? Ghost of Vision or Spectre mm-hmm. Vision or something, something silly like that. <laughs> But uh, yeah, you're, you're supposed to put on your ghost viewing glasses whenever the characters do. So this is by Gon's interpretation of his experience watching Nightmare on Elm Street Part 6? That I seems to be so. that I think case. that's more than yeah. influence. <laughs> Great. It makes sense. There's dreams in Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not a stretch. It's not as big a stretch as you think it might be. Nailed it. <laughs> um, like, do you guys want to know what by Gon himself said about the 3D aspect? I'm curious, um, yeah. So this is taken. This is quoted on the Wikipedia page for the film. So it's a film about memory. After the first part, I wanted the film to have a different, sorry, to take on a different texture. In fact, for me, 3D is simply a texture, like a mirror that turns our memories into tactile sensations. It's just a three-dimensional representation of space. But I believe this three-dimensional feeling recalls that of our recollections of the past much more than 2D anyway. 3D images are fake, but they resemble our memories much more closely. So I think what he's kind of saying a bit of a long-term, in sort of a long-form way is that he feels that 3D makes the film much more real than the 2D, which in turn then will make you sort of think about your own memories of reality a lot closer than a 2D image would. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess because yeah, like like when you think of something, obviously you're not getting a complete picture. You're getting like a few things that just stick out. So I, yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. So apparently that's his reason for using three D. Huh. Uh, is because it, apparently he feels that watching this in three D will give the audience a much more sort of lucid view of recalling their own memories because they'll feel it'll feel realer because yeah. 
Yeah, I do wonder how I would react to this film more if I had like the entire theater experience because it feels like that's kind of the idea of this because I, I don't yeah. assume thanks everyone has a 3D TV in their house. Yeah, I know. I know one person in our film club did watch this part in 3D um, because he had the he had the Blu-ray release that that included mm-hmm. the 3D glasses and stuff. So um, I noticed some one person film did watch this in 3D. Obviously, as far as I'm aware, the Criterion Channel version. I don't think it, it doesn't obviously have it's, it seemed too, texture. It's not too much light. I'm thinking it's a 2D version because yeah, usually it must 3D just be a 2D dark. version. Yeah, and you also you have the textural difference. You can tell like when you, it overlaps. Obviously, you have that mm-hmm. sort of slight skew overlapping. Um, and I know that from when I watched Prometheus in the theater in, in 3D version, but I watched it without the 3D glasses because <laughs> 3D glasses give me a headache. Um, so I watched Prometheus in 3D, but without the glasses um, so yeah long day's journey in tonight um weird and film concludes- yeah <laughs> good weird film that's it yeah that concludes our exploration of two films we don't really understand but uh <laughs> are we worth bullshitted watching. our way into an hour and a half episode do it yeah <laughs> Look, I'll say the same thing for this I said as to Zigorn Sigourney Weaver. Um, I've forgotten what it's called already. I'll say the same thing for this as said for that. I'll never watch it again, but I will. I, if anyone said they're thinking of watching it, I'd say, yeah, sure, go ahead. It's interesting. And I'm actually surprised this one won because this is one where I actually had to put the uh, poll up. And I don't think this one was on the original poll. But then someone pointed out that I'd had a pick from like five weeks ago, and I was like, Fuck. so I just threw yeah. it on there at the last. And second. it's funny because this your theme was twenty first century cinema, yeah, if I remember correctly, and yeah. you put this in very early in our rotations. I did a theme on twenty first century film, and this was in it, but it lost. Oh, I did not realize that. I need to look yeah. at that. Uh, I need to be a habit of working at our Google. There Docs. was. It was such a long gap between it. Like this was like a pretty early pick for me. It wouldn't have like affected you being able to choose this. It was definitely more than obviously the eight week gap that we normally go on. I'm just going to pull up the list. I'm trying to remember what film won that week. Let me just pull up the watch list for this. Well, what? and um, I had two other films on there, but I asked uh, someone in our film club who's from Canada, like, hey, are these films on there? And two of them weren't in Canada. I was like, God, like, can't you guys use a VPN like Adam does? It was meant to be. <laughs> I think Still Walking must have won that week. Okay. Yeah, that sounds right. Because that's 21st century. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the only sort of 21st century film I've come across reading, going through the... I'm going through the watch list in order here. And that's like the first one I get to. And I know that Still Walking was definitely one of my picks. So that's what yeah. makes sense, really. I think so if this was... Can... If, if there ever is an excuse to watch it again, I do think it gets better on rewatch because some of these films that, that aren't, you know, strictly linear with their narrative, it, it takes the time to go through it to almost kind of position yourself to like what, you know, the experience of watching the movie or something. You have to like readjust to like see what, you know, what, what, what is this? It, it doesn't typical uh, follow a typical three act structure or five act structure or whatever. It's so, broken up you have to like adjust to it right but then the second time through you're not like surprised by it so you get to more experience the movie that would be my only my my only uh, uh counter to that it might be a really beautiful film on a second watch but it's i'm not, I'm not saying you should just that's 
you know, it was, I, I feel like I, I appreciated it more um, the third time. <laughs> Maybe at some point I will sit down and rewatch, because there were definitely, like, I don't think we got to, like, several of them, but there were, like, some really cool stuff done in this film. Um, but I almost feel like if I was like, man, I'm in the mood for something like that, I'll end up just throwing on Mulholland Drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Much more fun watch. Cool. We're going into the last part of our podcast now, which if you regularly listen, you'll know is called Any Other Business, just where we talk about something we've seen recently that we want to give a highlight to. Uh, I'm going to start this off because I normally do anyway. Um, so I, about just over a week ago, watched the uh, new adaptation of Macbeth uh, from, from Joel Cohen. I had to check if it was Joel or Ethan, I couldn't remember. <laughs> from Joel Cohen called The Tragedy of Macbeth. Uh, it's out on Apple TV Plus, um, at least in Ireland. I, I don't know if it is. It's, that's US what it's on ours as well. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I, I was blown away. Like I'm, I'm a big Macbeth fan ever since school. I've always loved Macbeth. It's always my favorite Shakespeare I've always, I've, you know, I've seen a few different adaptations of it, you know, obviously more classic ones like, you know, Plansky's or obviously the sort of more, you know, like the Curacao one, Throne of Blood. Um, this one's definitely been my favorite so far uh, from Joel Cohen. So I don't need to tell the story of Macbeth. Everyone knows Macbeth. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it's just incredible looking. It's it's a really incredible looking film. I don't know if you guys have seen sort of trailers or, or screen caps from it or anything like that, but it's it's shot in black and white, really high contrast. It's sort of like it's it's not shot on location, of course. It's not actually shot like physically outdoors or anything like that. It's all indoor sets, but it's very much, you know, kind of like a Carl's uh, Dreyer film. I don't know if you guys are, have seen many, many Dreyer movies, but very sparse sets very like the castles you just like have singular walls with huge open open doorways with lots of shadow and light almost kind of expressionist in a way so it's an incredibly incredibly beautiful looking film um you know obviously i'm a big cinematography guy so i was just immediately drawn in by the screenshots i've seen of the film before even watching i thought this is going to be good um but obviously, obviously, the story is great. It's a knockout. It's a 10 out of 10 story. I'm not going to talk too much about the plot of Macbeth because, like I said, everyone knows it. It's it's an amazing story. Um, the cast is all really good. Like, I wasn't too convinced of having Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand in the two main roles. And, like, they use their American accents. I thought, maybe this won't work. Um, but Francis McDormand was incredible, as always. She's always amazing. Uh, anytime I've seen her in anything, she's always great. Um, Denzel was a little bit ropey at the start in terms of his line delivery, but like as the Macbeth character goes a bit more mad, uh, he starts to really, really get great in it as well. So I thought he was fantastic also as Macbeth. Um, so if you guys are, are interested in Macbeth, even if you're not interested in Macbeth, I think it's a great story. I do recommend watching it with subtitles just because it is in the original sort of old English Shakespearean. Um, so even though like I, it's not like a, an, an audio issue or anything like that where it's hard to make out what they're saying. I think it's just easier to follow the plot when you can just be sure exactly what they're saying. So if you haven't seen it yet, um, I highly, highly recommend it. It's definitely my favorite film of the year so far um, that I've seen anyway. It's, it's listed as a 2021 film in Letterboxd, but it only came out in Ireland on like the 9th of January. So I'm counting it as 2022. It's my favorite film of the year so far um until i eventually get to see scream 
which hopefully that will become my favorite. But um, yeah, I highly recommend Macbeth. I do recommend watching with subtitles, but it's it's an incredible film. Now you've made me want to watch Christopher Nolan's Macbeth, just so I can't like actually hear anything. Because you're talking about it's oh, not, it's okay. Like, I was so confused for a minute. The sound mixing is awful. Sound mix is terrible. That would be <laughs> a very rough watch if you were going to watch a Shakespeare play with terrible audio mixing. That would just that would be no fun for anyone. Did, how did it feel with uh, just Joel doing the movie? Did it still feel Coen Brothers-y or did it feel like not at all. sort of thing? Not at all. It's definitely its own kettle of fish. This is not a, there's there's no levity or anything. Like you'd always find in a Coen's film, there's always a bit of levity, a bit of, you know, a bit of tongue in cheek somewhere. Even there, even in sort of the darker stuff, there's always a bit of tongue in cheek or something in there. This is definitely its own kettle of fish altogether. This is basically Joel kind of saying to himself, like, I want to make like a, Bergman-y, dryery kind of movie, and he, he knocks it out of the park. Uh, and you guys know I'm not a huge Coen Brothers guy. Not to say I don't like the Coen Brothers. I just you know I wouldn't put them in my top ten or anything like that. But uh, yeah, I'd be super interested to see more of what Joel's does if he's going to keep doing this kind of stuff. Uh, I'd be very much interested in seeing what he does next. Yeah, I mean, from the sound of it, it sounds like um, I don't know. From interviews I've pieced together, it almost sounds like Ethan. Cohen kind of wants to step away from yeah from right. cool. so okay. it sounds like you know Joel's kind of you know I don't want to say it's a tether because they work great together but now I think it's always like the okay I can do just whatever now yeah well look it obviously look they're, they're two of the most successful filmmakers in American history at least in recent American history so but it is still a tether they are mm-hmm. still tethered to one another's ideas and everything like that so if this gives sort of Joel sort of full creative control after seeing Macbeth I would have no problem with that I might have to rent it soon then. I don't have Apple TV, but I assume I can still rent it on my phone and cast it to the TV. I don't know. You're the Apple guy. I'm not sure. Like Apple TV usually has an app anyway. Like the Apple TV app and Apple Mm -hmm. TV Plus subscription are not intertwined. So if you have an Xbox or a PlayStation or even like a, you know, like an Android box or whatever, like a Roku, that kind of thing, or a Fire Stick even, I'm pretty sure you can like you can still download the Apple TV app, but just a subscription is obviously done within the app. You can still obviously buy and rent movies outside of the subscription through the okay. app as well. Uh, that's so. what I hadn't where isn't I hadn't watched it. I was like, I don't know anything about Apple TV. Yeah, it, it can be confusing. It can be confusing. Like, yeah, it can, it can be confusing. But the app itself, um, you don't have to have an Apple TV Plus subscription to use the app. You can still buy and rent movies and do other subscriptions like movie, go through it as well. At least in Ireland, anyway, Studio Canal have their own subscription service through it stuff. So you don't okay. even have to have Apple TV Plus, but I don't know how if that's different in, in the US. Um, Zach, are you okay if I go next? Just because I want you to talk about your movie uh, that you're picking next as, to, to finish this off. Sure. So um, speaking of movies that are, are similar in tone to other directors, I just saw Paddington 2. Have you all seen this movie? I haven't seen it, but I know it's the greatest movie that's ever been made. I refuse to watch it for that. I refuse to watch it for that reason. <laughs> I know it's been heavily memed, but that movie is yeah. so charming. I, I, I mean, whatever. Uh, you know, I think that the the noise around it will obviously buzz down. I think Reddit's full of a lot of. Well, you know what? Never mind. I, I won't go down that path. But uh, Reddit's a great place. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it's just a very charming movie 
And it's the kids movie that Wes Anderson could never make no matter how hard he wanted to. It is fully a Wes Anderson movie. It's done by somebody that is not, that like is just fully committed to making a kid's film and not a Wes Anderson movie, if that makes sense. It, it even has like a, a band that follows Paddington around and kind of sings at certain moments in the film when like, when like cute things are happening or, or stressful moments are happening. Um, it, it's a little bit of, have y'all um, either read The Idiot by Dostoevsky or seen a movie like Being There maybe by Hal Ashby? No, mm-hmm. neither. No. It's one of the Dostoevsky's I haven't read. Okay, there, there's this character that is, it's very, you know, uh, a trope at this point, but the character that is, is good and it, because they're so just pure in their nature and good, it's confusing to the people around them who are not good. And, and he kind of wins them over, right? Because he's always himself or this, this character is always themselves despite being in a world that is not pure. Right. And they're dropped into this world and the world has to figure out how to respond to this character. So that's why I think the first Paddington movie resonates so well with people, because it's a it's a direct rip on that storyline. Uh, Paddington becomes uh, Prince Michigan from The Idiot or the, the character from being there. It's just a there, there's not an impure bone in his body or, or a piece of fur on his body, I guess, as a pair. Right. Um, and then the second one takes that idea and basically places the bear in a Wes Anderson movie. And it's just a delight. Like the way the characters are, are introduced when he goes to prison, the way that the, the whole prison scene goes, it's very just the whole thing is so charming. I do get the hype in this case. It's obviously not the greatest movie ever made, but they shoot pictures already has it at 3000 and it's only four years old or whatever. So like, People are responding very well to this film and I get it. And I'm, I want to recommend it on a Criterion Film Club discussion podcast. <laughs> it's very good. It's a fun watch. I should expect, so in the next month, I should expect to have Paddington 2 on my watch list when it's your turn, is what you're telling me. <laughs> no, maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> That'd be such a dick move that I'd watch the first one first. <laughs> No, I would refuse. I would still just start with the second one. Like, <laughs> just have to let me know. <laughs> what All right. Well, um, so I, I last little bit, I've been working on a project for the website for the last few months. Uh, and one of them is kind of doing a retrospective of horror from this past year. Um, I'm approximately like 40 movies in and I've got like 30 more to go. Uh, so it's 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 a much bigger task than I figured it would be, and I may end up shortening, not worrying about some of those that I know aren't going to be good. One that I was really looking forward to watching uh, that I finally got around to was a movie by the Beta Test, which is directed by a actor named Jim Cummings. Um, I don't know if either of you guys have watched either of his movies. He's famous for Thunder Road, The Wolf of, uh, and The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Um, the name sounds familiar let me just look them up that's another the actor jim cummings is also a voice actor but it's not the same person oh uh, okay, that's where i was mixing them up with them yeah okay. so same name not the same person though um but jim cummings has kind of done a lot within genre films and one thing i really appreciate about him as a director and an actor is he really puts himself in these unflattering roles 
like in I take Wolf of Snow Hollow, which came out in 2020, for an example. It's a werewolf mystery type film. It was Robert Forrester's last role. Um, really fun watch. But the main he plays the main character who is the sheriff's son, who is a hundred percent unlikable. He has no idea how to actually talk to people. He's very abrasive. Um, and he's just not likable, like in any sort of way. And so he does that in all of his films. He's, you know, in Thunder Road, he's an alcoholic that is ruining his own life. He always plays a cop in things. Actually, Adam, I know something you've seen him in. So in Halloween Kills, do you remember the cop at the beginning who was shot by the other cop? Jesus, no. I know it's been a uh, while, but he he's it's the same actor. He always ends up playing a cop and stuff. Um, okay. Dancer is no, anyway. I do not remember that one explicit scene. <laughs> yeah, I thought I would just add. Uh, it was in the flashback scene. Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. My, yeah, and in the flashback to, to the original Hollow. Yes, I do remember that. When he tries yeah, to shoot so, Michael and he shoots the cop instead. Yes. Yeah, the, the cop that gets shot is Jim Cummings. That's the actor. So he ends up playing okay. the cop in most things. But this one, he's actually not. The movie is called The Beta Test. And essentially what the film is about is he plays a character that essentially wants to be Harvey Weinstein. Like he works in that type of firm. They produce films. And it's just kind of the fallout from all that. And he gets this letter, this purple letter, and ask him what his sexual preferences are. He's in the middle of planning a marriage, but he decides to fill it out and turn it in. And then they hand him a letter of an address of where to go meet a person and put a blindfold on. And, you know, he becomes obsessed because of the sexual experience or whatever. And it kind of goes into this whole conspiracy of, you know, while he's trying to figure out who this woman was, he's trying to plan a wedding with his fiance the entire time. And he's so, un- he's, he continues to be incredibly unlikable, but there's just something about his performance that is just so almost charming. Like as unlikable as it is, how much you just really hate him and you know, you'd hate him in real life. You can't help, but kind of like him at the same time. So I really recommend it. It's like seven bucks to rent, but I think it's absolutely worth it. I think he is just a really great young director and actor who I'm just really excited to see kind of what else he does. Wow. Nice. That wraps up this week's episode of They Live By Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. You can also follow our Letterboxd, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, 